Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Acts chapter number 27, where I want us to begin at verse 27 as we go over the great shipwreck of the Apostle Paul on his trip to Rome. Now, this is taking place uh, in probably October, maybe beginning of November of the year 60. And Paul had warned them when they were at Fair Havens in Crete, don't sail anymore or people could die. The ship could be destroyed. But they wanted to make one last little hop along the south coast of Crete to get to the more suitable harbor for their purposes. And because they made that gamble, they got caught in this huge storm sweeping out of Turkey across the lower part of the Greek Isles, across the island of Crete, slamming into their grain ships, sails, and driving it hard off to the southwest. They barely had time to get their little launch pulled up into its uh, place of storage uh, before the weather closed in on them completely. Uh, and they spent the next several days trying to do what they could to prep the ship for long-term damage or long-time damage from this storm. And they were really worried uh, that they were being pushed into the very dangerous offshore, long offshore uh, sandbars of North Africa. And they kept dumping out their cargo. They kept getting rid of non-essential heavy items and just praying that they wouldn't end up shipwrecking so far away from land that they would all drown. Now, what they did not know at the time is that the wind that they were caught in was shifting so that it moved toward the west and then eventually toward the northwest. And they are being pushed with divine precision toward the island of Crete, excuse me, the island of Malta, about, I think, 450 or so miles uh, west-southwest from Crete. So Paul, in our story yesterday, had just got up and did the whole I told you thing, I told you so routine, but he also told them, but don't worry about it. Because God has answered my prayer that everyone on this ship will be safe. Uh, we're going to shipwreck right next to an island. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come. So think about it, folks. They were in effectively a Mediterranean hurricane for two weeks. No sun, no moon, no stars. Just wind and rain. 
Uh, and it says, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, now when Luke loses, uses this term, he uses it in a much broader sense than we use it today. Uh, this sea is what separated the eastern Mediterranean, that would be the Greek islands eastward, uh, and Greece mainland and eastward, uh, from the western Mediterranean, which would be the Italian peninsula and Sicily and all of that uh, heading out toward the Straits of Gibraltar. Uh, so they are caught up in this open area uh, below uh, the, uh, the boot of Italy. And so as we are being driven across this Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. Now, these guys are professionals, so they can hear in the dark the sound of surf breaking somewhere out there in the darkness. And that means that they're coming upon something that is above sea level. Uh, could be a large island, or it might be one of those dreaded shoals, one of those dreaded uh, sandbars. And so they took a sounding. And the way they would take a sounding is they would have a rope that is marked uh, the distance between a man's hands outstretched. So it's roughly about six feet increments. These are called fathoms. And so they took a sounding with a weighted rope that's marked like that, just dropping it off the side, and once they feel it hit the floor, then they pull it up, taking you know the, the stretching uh, of between the arms, how distance is, and they found out that there were 20 of those fathoms. So that's about 120 feet. A little farther along... They took another sounding, and they found it was only 15 fathoms. So now it's only 90 feet. And so now they know they are definitely moving upslope uh, below them uh, on the seafloor, which means they're coming up onto some sort of land or something that is going to hit the bottom of their ship. I don't know what the draft, that is. I don't know uh, how much of this ship was below uh, sea level when it's uh, floating along, but uh, it's certainly in danger if it gets probably uh, 30 feet shallow or less. They're probably going to run aground. Verse 29, fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, these anchors are interesting uh, because these are metal anchors uh, from the time period, uh, and uh, they are to keep the ship in place by digging in to the seabed and holding the ship from any more forward progress. Uh, and later we'll see in the story that they will cut the ropes on these sea anch on these anchors uh, and allow the ship to move forward, which means the anchors 
would have remained in the seabed. And guess what? Some people who have done some underwater archaeological digging have come across not one or two or three, but four such metal anchors from this first century in a bay on Malta. And uh, they've put those things into a, uh, an archaeological museum nearby. And so a lot of people are like, well, these are from Paul's shipwreck. Now, do we know that for a fact? No. But it is rather interesting that there were found four of them in the same vicinity with one another from exactly this time period in pretty much the area where Paul's shipwreck took place. If you're curious, uh, just search that uh, out on the internet. I believe there's an actual book written uh, by some of the people that were involved in the archaeological effort. Now, uh, verse number 30. As, excuse me, verse 29 first. Fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So they're, they're waiting because they want to see what's out there. They can hear the surf hitting something. They know that the sea is getting shallower, so they're definitely approaching some sort of land. But they don't know, is it just... A shoal? Is it just a sandbar out in the middle of nowhere? Or is it an actual island like Paul said was going to be there? Verse 30. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. So here we have some of the professional sailors have decided, well, they don't want to be on this ship when it runs aground. And they figure they're out of there. So they pretend like they're going to put some more anchors out the front end of the ship to kind of stabilize it more. But in, what they're really doing is they're getting that launch out of its derrick, out of its storage area, and putting it down into the water so that they can go down, jump in it, and uh, get away. Uh, if there is an island out there, they'll be safe. If there's not an island out there, at least they've still got another boat with a shallower draft uh, that they can probably limp along to shore somewhere. Now, that does not go over well, though. Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion, that's Julius, and to the soldiers that work for Julius, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So Paul says, listen to me. God has basically said, everyone is in this. If they don't stay with us, nobody's safe. That's a deal breaker. And so this tells you just how much stock these Romans are putting into the Apostle Paul's words. After all, he's been right up to this point of everything. So they cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and they let it go. They said, enough of that. Chop, chop. Ship now, the little launch is now loose to float away to wherever it's going to go. And uh, as the day was about to dawn... 
Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had taken the head, said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Isn't that interesting? Here he is. He basically is encouraging everyone, look, we've been two weeks without really eating too much. We've been kind of fasting out of concern, perhaps a little bit out of seasickness. And now we are about to be saved. And so I want everybody to get themselves a little bit of energy by eating something. And then he thanks God for it in their presence. He breaks the bread. In some sense, he's almost kind of doing communion with them because he's thanking the Lord Jesus for getting them to where they need to be, keeping them safe. Uh, And he predicts, he prophesies to them as an apostle, none of you guys are going to die. You're all going to be okay. Verse number 36, Then they were all encouraged, and they ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. So that includes the sailors, the soldiers, the prisoners, and whatever other passengers might have been on board this grain ship. Now, I've told you before, we know that all these big ships carried passenger compartments as well. And some of them carried a lot of passengers along with their cargo. Uh, Josephus talks about, I think, something like 600 people uh, being passengers and crew on the ship that he was taking uh, from the Middle East to the uh, Roman Peninsula whenever his ship uh, ran into a storm and uh, went down somewhere in this same general vicinity of the Aegean. Uh, so 276 sounds like a lot of people on this ship, but in fact, it's less than what many of the ships had. Uh, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, this might seem a little bit confusing because we already know this is a grain ship, And they threw out a lot of their cargo earlier. Well, more than likely, this is the remaining wheat that they kept back for their own consumption. So it wouldn't have been a bunch, but it still would have been some, because there's 276 of them on here. And so they would have kept back quite a bit of grain uh, to be used for food, even though they haven't been eating it. So they throw that bit overboard to let the ship come up just a little bit more, uh, hoping that that will help them in what they're about to do next, because here is their plan. Verse 39, when it was day, they did not recognize the land. So none of the soldiers recognizes the geography out there. Uh, But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the shore aground. 
Uh, so some of the land they can see is, you know, kind of like cliffs going up from the shoreline. But they can also see that there's an inlet. And with the inlet, there's a place with a beach. And that would be the perfect place to run this ship aground. Because they'd all be able to get up on shore pretty easily from there. So verse 40 they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. So they chopped the lines, left those four anchors behind them, which is why I mentioned them finding uh, some first century ship anchors in a bay at Malta. At the same time, loosening the ropes they tied uh, that tied the rudders. Uh, so this is at least a double rudder ship. And they've apparently had those rudders tied into a very specific position. And so now they get those restraining ropes off uh, because they want to be able to guide the ship a little bit as they try to run into ground. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind. So this is the, the sail up at the front that helps pull that bow forward. Uh, and then they made for the beach. So they are aiming to hit that beach, but they ran into a problem. It says, striking a reef. So there is this underwater place, a sandbank. Uh, the Greek actually has here the idea of a place between two seas. Uh, and so some of the people trying to identify exactly where on Malta this is, uh, they think it's probably up on the north shore uh, uh, up on the northmost uh, point on the east side of that north shore, uh, there's several bays. One of them is actually called St. Paul's Bay. Uh, and there's several places where underneath the water there are sandbars or reefs uh, that stick out or uh, that can't be seen just by themselves uh, but they're high enough, uh, just under the waves, that if uh, your ship uh, is sitting low in the water, it can get stuck. And so that's what they hit. Uh, they didn't know it was there. Uh, so they ran the vessel aground. So now they're stuck offshore. Uh, the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So now... The front end of the ship is grounded and the back end of the, sh of the ship is being hammered by the ocean waves. And it doesn't take very long before the back end of the boat starts coming apart. And this was the very thing they were worried about might happen a long way offshore uh, if they'd been in the Syrtis off the north coast of Africa or perhaps here uh, if they'd run ashore, uh, run across long from shore. Uh, but they're close enough that they can see the land. So they know they're be going to be able to swim ashore. But that's when the Roman soldiers have a dilemma that pops up. Verse 42, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. Uh, Roman soldiers are charged with 
delivering their prisoners from point A to point B without them escaping, without them losing them. If they allow them to get away, the Roman soldier could be brought up on charges, and the typical way of punishment was whatever that prisoner had coming to him would be done to you. Uh, So if they were someone that would potentially be beaten as their punishment, that's what you would get first. You'd get a beating for allowing that prisoner get away. If they were going to be fined, then you would end up paying any fine that they would have had to pay. But the really big thing was if they were someone facing capital punishment, eventually, if you'd let these guys get away, you would be executed. Uh, So soldiers uh, who are concerned that they might lose more than one prisoner at once don't want to take the chance. They just like kill them all. That way we don't have to face any consequences. Um, And so the centurion steps in. He's the commanding officer wishing to save Paul which is interesting because apparently these prisoners, these uh, soldiers are like, we just need to call all the prisoners, kill them all because we're worried even one of them might get away. And so he wants to keep Paul safe uh, and uh, he's trusted Paul up to this point. So he kept them from carrying out their plans. He told them, no, we're not going to do that. This is what we're going to do instead. And every time I tell this story now, I think about the scene from a modern-day movie about prisoner movement, uh, where uh, a plane full of prisoners crashes in a swamp. Uh, And uh, what do the guards do? They do exactly this procedure here. It says, He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and then the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship And so it was that they were all brought safely to land. So in the movie, uh, you've got all those guards. uh, Some of them stay with the prisoners at the sinking plane, while others go to shore and set up a cordon on the shoreline to make sure that they collect and account for all the prisoners as they come up on shore. That's exactly what these Roman soldiers do. Some of them get to land and wait for all the prisoners to arrive and account for them and keep them uh, in their custody. And just exactly as Paul predicted, just exactly as Paul prophesied, every last person made it to shore. Chapter 28. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Uh, Malta or Melitis. Uh, it's basically Honey Island. Uh, it is a, 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 an island uh, south of uh, the island of Sicily, so south of the Italian peninsula. Uh, apparently it's a very beautiful island, never been there, but I know a lot of people like to go there for holiday trips. Uh, and so at this time, there was a Roman presence there But there were a lot of Maltese people, islanders, uh, that were in control. 
It says, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So the islanders, they saw the shipwreck happen, or they could see that it had happened, and they were kind and thoughtful. They all run down to the beach, and they start making great big fires for people to gather around after they've been in the water, uh, because, you know, the, the, the storm itself continues uh, to make everybody wet and cold. Uh, after all, it's probably late October, early November, uh, and so they're trying to help these poor people out. And then something strange happens. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, so he's helping keep the fire hot and going, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So a poisonous snake, which they don't have on the island anymore, but at one time they did. So this snake was probably cold and hiding out in the sticks. When Paul was holding the sticks close to the fire. It warmed up enough that he got scared and reached out and bit him and held on. Verse 4, When the native people saw that the creature was hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So they're a little bit superstitious in the sense they believe that the sea god had just tried to execute this murderer and he escaped from the sea, but now the God of justice has sent his serpent to carry out the penalty of death against this guy. So that's what they're thinking. But then, verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall down dead. See, they knew this type of snake was very often fatal. Certainly, it made you very sick. Well, when they waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And of course, they were wrong both ways. But Paul will now be given the opportunity to evangelize this island for Jesus.